Our Father, which art in heaven, we thank you again for being able to come before you. We thank you for all you have done for us. We pray that you may be with not only this seminar, but the other seminars that are going on at the same time. And as we continue to talk about the dangers of secular psychology, we again ask for your wisdom and for the presence of your Holy Spirit to give understanding. We thank you so much for all you've given to us, and may we not take this information for granted, Father, but continue to study and grow and learn in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we do pray, amen. amen. All right, we started out, I think you remember, this was the last quote I put up. We were talking about um, studying and, and dealing with emotions, and I shared with you how psychologists place emotions as primary when they're dealing with problems. So we're gonna continue on that vein, and we talked a little bit about anger, and we're gonna move on to another major emotion that psychologists focus on that's also important in our Christian walk, and that's guilt. I found this on the internet by Dr. Doris Jeanette, and she pretty much summarizes what most secular psychologists think about guilt. She says, guilt is the worst experience known to humans. It makes you feel unworthy and miserable. It is caused by thinking you have done something wrong. You are taught to feel guilt when someone judges you about anything, how you dress, how you think, what you do. There is no right or wrong, only experiences to learn from. So get out there and enjoy learning and living and growing. Toss guilt out. That's what I was taught in school. Guilt is, guilt is damaging, and so when you're dealing with clients, you need to help them, you know, absorb their guilt, get rid of their guilt. Guilt is something that's bad, damaging, and bad. Remember, truth and error. Always keep that in mind when I'm talking because there is some truth to that. Guilt can be damaging, and we'll talk about that. Then some of you might have heard of Albert Ellis. If you have, put your hand up. No one? You've heard of cognitive behavior therapy, right? He's like the father of it. And I, there are some things I really like about cognitive behavior. In fact, that's probably one of the things that I held on to in my training, because it fits so much the biblical injunction, as a man thinketh, so is he. But even with the fathers of these theories that are good, they have their interesting viewpoints. And Albert Ellis says, the more sinful and guilty a person feels, the less chance there is he will be a happy, healthy, or law-abiding citizen. He will become a compulsive wrongdoer. Do you see some truth with that? Do you see some error with that? Both going on. That's what makes psychology, secular psychology, so alluring because it just mixes truth and error in such a really deceptive way. Now, we talked about the contemporary Christian music movement, and I keep bringing that up because you might not have known that it has a lot of psychological underpinnings too. And we talked about self-esteem and this unconditional acceptance thing, and this whole idea about guilt really fuels that whole music movement. Because the idea is to go to church to feel good. You don't want to make people feel guilty. You want to feel good. You want to leave church feeling good, not guilty. There are very many in the churches who are deceiving their own souls. They reach a standard of their own creating. They think that religion consists of going to church to hear sermons and to have a what? This was going on even in her day, that they were going to church, you know, I want to feel good when I leave church. They do not comprehend that if they ever reach heaven, it must be by daily self-denial and conflict. This fair-weathered Christianity will not do in the time toward which we are rushing. What time is she talking about? 
now, right before the close of probation, under the sun of scorching trial, all such will be found withered away. My contention is that as we focus on this, if we take this idea pushed by secular psychology that people shouldn't feel guilty and that should they should leave church feeling good, what kind of Christians are we producing, brothers and sisters? Strong Christians who can stand with what's coming ahead of us? Not very strong, because their, their, their religion is based on a set of producing good feelings. And feelings are so unstable, they do not last. And if we're looking for a religion that produces good feelings, when the time comes, we will not stand. Now, this was written by a psychiatrist who is not even a Christian, but wrote a book, Whatever Became of Sin. His name was Carl Menninger. Have you heard of him? wrote this in the 50s. He started to look at the mental health field and he says, something is wrong here. I don't hear the word sin at all in mental health. And he recognized that the sin problem is at the root of a lot of our mental health problems. And this is what he says, where indeed did sin go? What became of it? The very word sin seems to have disappeared. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared, the word along with the notion. Isn't that amazing that a non-Christian mental health professional would recognize that we don't talk about sin anymore? He is Jewish, that's right. That's, he had some idea, that's right. But he did say he's not, he wasn't even following his Jewish beliefs. But you're right, he, got, he had some idea of the Old Testament. Very good point, thanks for bringing that out. Remember earlier I talked about the psychiatrist getting on the television talking about why the South Carolina governor was having an affair? He's narcissistic, he's in a leadership position, on and on and on. But no one says it's because of sin. You didn't hear any of the psychiatrists saying that. That is not something that's spoken about. Did you have your hand up or you just, okay, I thought you had your hand up. There has been a strong tendency for the preacher to move into the field of pastoral counseling. Basic to most techniques of counseling is an avoidance of any response which might impute wrong or moral judgment upon the individual being counseled. We're still talking about this move away from guilt. Um, and the idea is that when you, when you leave the role as a pastor and you move into pastoral counseling, you have to get to the point where you're not judging your person, you can't give them any of your values, and so that takes away, well, let me, let me continue to read the, read the quote. This attitude has frequently been translated into the pulpit presentation of the preacher. No longer are right and wrong clearly defined, and congregations are left to their uncertainty and sin. But true repentance is only realized when what? And many people are suffering mentally because they don't recognize that guilt can be healthy if it leads me to a savior. But if we're completely avoiding that, what will happen? People will not get the healing that they truly need. I can't tell you the number of calls I've received from ministers telling me, where did you get your training? I'd like to get a master's in counseling. I'd like to get a master's in lear learning how to use psychological techniques to help people. I used to get excited when I get those calls. I'd say, wow, our, our, our people are really opening up and understanding the need for psychology. Now, brothers and sisters, I have to be honest. I don't get them as much, but when I do, it saddens me 
because what it lets me realize is that our pastors are moving away from their roles, moving away from the roles where we have to call out sin, pointing people to the Savior, and wanting to get into this counseling mode that's based on a whole different set of values. Are you all following what I'm saying here? There is a role of counseling that the minister has to play, uh, has to take part in, but the problem is we don't need to feck up take up the principles of secular psychology to do that counseling. We must be compassionate and merciful the way Christ was, but we have to call sin by its name or people will not receive the true healing. Remember the, um, the Catholic priest, the quote I put up earlier for those of you who were in the first session. The Catholic priest went through all this counseling and no one ever held him accountable for molesting the kids, went back into the parish and started molesting the kids again. You know, so we have to make people accountable for their sins while pointing them to a savior. What does Romans 3.23 say? Romans 3.23, all have sinned. We don't even need to look that up and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that and when we're dealing with people, we need to help them to realize in a Christ-like way. Someone was sharing with me on this campus, they were doing Bible studies with someone and she was living with her boyfriend, living in sin, and he was praying and saying, Lord, when do I bring this out? Because you don't want to turn people away, but at the same time, if you're leading people to Christ, they need to be brought to realize this is a sin. In counseling, I couldn't just say that directly to my clients because I'd be considered judging them. I remember going through my graduate training and the, the counselors kept saying, the, the, doc, the um, professors kept saying, Magna, do not put your values on people. Do not put your values on people. And I finally wrote a paper on that. I had a little bit of insight then. I finally wrote a paper and says, counseling is value laden. Y'all are just biased to what values we share. You know, all of counseling has values. But if we start talking religious values, oh no, stay away from that. Don't put your values on people. But when you really look at it, there's nothing that's value free. We just have to determine which value we're gonna share with people. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The reason I put this up here is because I believe this text kind of summarizes that there's a difference between, and I am using psychological words here, healthy guilt and unhealthy guilt. I worked in a psychiatric hospital for six months when I was being trained. That was back in the 80s. And I met so many people in there who was there just under a load of guilt because of past sins, past things that they had engaged in. At that time, I was taught that I couldn't bring Jesus into my work, so I couldn't share with them what Jesus had done and that there's a God who can forgive you. But they were literally having psychotic breakdowns, severe depression breakdowns, struggling under guilt. This kind of guilt that's staying on them like this, where do you think it's coming from? The enemy. And so when we're dealing with guilt and we're not, that guilt is not leading us to the Savior. This is not the kind of guilt that I'm talking about that we should be encouraging in Christianity. We want the guilt that's going to free us. And there's a good, there's several examples in the Bible of people who had this type of unhealthy guilt and it led them to kill, to kill themselves. Can you name one for me? Judas. Judas versus who else was his counterpart? Both of them felt guilt. Peter felt guilt when he betrayed Christ and the cock crew Three times it was? I believe it was three times. He felt guilt. And in Desire of Ages, she says he went out, and Bible might say this too, and wept bitterly. But eventually Peter was converted. Judas also felt guilt and ended up killing himself. 
Saul was another one. If you read the story of King Saul, he started down that path and eventually he had his armor bearer take the sword and, and kill him. You know, during the, the he was wounded at, and, and during the war and killed himself basically. So that is an unhealthy guilt that leads you down a road to self-condemnation. That's not the kind of guilt that I'm talking about. We should be putting on to our people. We need to be putting on that guilt that helps them recognize what I did was wrong and then point them to a savior. So you all see the difference between that. And many people are suffering mentally. There is a, a, was a psychiatrist who had a place called the Soteria Hospital, I believe it was, back in the 70s. He claimed to cure schizophrenia by having them coming in there and deal with their guilt. It took him a long time to deal with that because he wasn't pointing them to the Savior, but the premise was very much correct. I just met with someone who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, which is, I don't do often. She was sent to me. And as we started to talk about her life, this woman was just, she had like a boulder of guilt on her that led her to hear voices, et cetera. Another story I know of a couple, the, um, the gentleman, the husband of the couple, started to hear voices and seeing things, and the wife didn't know what was happening. What's happening, honey, she says, and he couldn't talk, he couldn't talk. Finally, he got it out that he had had two affairs that she never knew about. When he got that out, guess what happened to the voices and the things he was seeing? Went away. Guilt can do many things to us. And sometimes people are in these hospitals because we're not dealing with their guilt properly. Even depression sometimes can be due to guilt. We're taught in school that when people kill themselves or have suicidal thoughts, it's because they're depressed. Sometimes people don't know how to deal with their guilt. I had a family member who was in that situation, and I really believe what happened to them was they were under this load of guilt and didn't know how to bring it to Jesus and eventually ended their lives. So guilt is something we need to recognize, but then we need to point people to the Savior. Another um, quote from past, um, Elder Mostert, I mentioned his name earlier. He wrote the book Hidden Heresy. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to get it. He says, when a sinner wanders into the church and sits through skits, mimes, interpretive dances, and the like, and yet never hears a clear, convict, convicting message about his dangerous and tenuous spiritual situation, that he is a depraved sinner headed for eternal fire. That sounds strong these days, doesn't it? Because he is a daily offense to a holy God, how can that be called successful? You could achieve the same level of success by sending a cancer patient to receive treatment from a group of children playing doctor. A sinner must understand the imminent danger he is in if he is ever to look to the Savior. Guilt plays a very important role in our spiritual walk and in our emotional and mental walk. We can't skid around it. We can't try to make people feel good and say, you know, let's not, you know, let's not induce any guilty feelings. You're preventing them from achieving the true healing that they can achieve. And we must keep that in mind. And I mentioned already, Peter and Judas, there's some guilt that is not healthy. So we've kind of talked about all these areas of psychology. There's many more that we could talk about. Dr. Nelson brought up earlier, and I, w I wish I could do a whole presentation on psychology and the new age. There is such a link between that. In fact, I heard the um, manager for 3ABN Radio, what is his name? Do you, um, J um, uh, what is his name? I can't remember, tall guy on 3ABN. Anyway, he used to be into the New Age movement. And it was interesting to hear him when he did the interview on 3ABN talk about how the New Age movement pushes this self-esteem thing. 
And as he was talking, I said, boy, this is the same thing I learned in, in graduate school about psychology. And I have this theory, it may sound far-fetched, but you know the three, what is it, the three spirits that comes out like um, tongue, like frogs? I believe in their psychology fits somewhere because of the spiritualism underpinnings that it has. I'm gonna do more research in that and come up with a presentation on that because I really believe Satan's gonna use that more than we think at the end of time. But let's talk about moving away from the vain philosophies of psychology. How do we do that? We've already learned that we must Test everything by the word of God. If, even if it sounds good, unconditional love and all of these things, go back and test it by the word of God. Don't just accept it because it sounds good. Everything has to be tested by God's word. And the only way you could test it is if you know God's word. When I was going through graduate school, I didn't know God's word. So when they came to me with Freud, Rogers, Maslow, I just ate it all up because I thought it sounded good. You know, but I, if you're going into these fields, I strongly admonish you, you have to have a strong, strong biblical foundation. And I truly believe very few of us can go through these fields and be trained and not come out tainted. When I came out of graduate school, my doctoral program, I had such crazy ideas, but I called myself a Seventh-day Adventist and I didn't realize how deceived I was. So when people come and ask me, should I go into these fields, I can't tell them not, go, not to go, but I strongly caution, if you're going to go into it, you have to be strongly grounded in the Word of God or else you will be deceived. The Bible tells us, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Everything that comes upon us, we must prove. The Word of God is the great detector of error. To it we believe everything must be brought. We must study it reverentially. We are to receive no one's opinions without comparing it with scriptures. And that's very important. Because of this move with psychology coming into our church, some of you in your churches are going to have various speakers coming in interweaving secular psychology with the Bible. And if you don't know the Bible, you will accept this hook, line, and sinker and not recognizing what's happening. So I strongly encourage you to make sure that whatever you hear from up front, compare it to Scripture. Now, there are some things in psychology that confirms no, not confirmed, support scripture. And I just wanted to share some of what I found. There's a lot out there. I get excited when I see research that goes along with scriptures. Check this out. People who provide no support to others, they are more than twice as likely to die in a five-year period as people who help spouses, friends, I got spouses up there twice, relatives, and neighbors. Giving to a spouse, friend, and neighbor is linked with a lower chance of dying. Isn't that interesting? That's why the Bible says, is it not to deal thy bread to hungry and that thou bring the poor that I cast out to thy house when thou seest the naked that they cover him? And this is the key right here. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning and thine health shall spring forth. There's health, mental health benefits, physical health benefits from helping others. When I see that kind of research, it lets me know these people are on the right track. True science. Let's share something else. 60,475 American college students were, or colleges were surveyed between, I'm sorry, college students were surveyed between 1979 and 2006. One out of four students in recent generations showed an elevate, elevated rates of narcissism. Do you all know what narcissism is? 
Say that louder. Selfishness. Selfishness, self-centeredness, basically. In 1985, that number was only one in seven. So that's increasing. Too much self-absorption, this is secular psychologists talking, can lead to interpersonal strife. They're finally seeing the light that you focus too much on self, you're gonna have strife with people. This know also that what? In the last days, perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Psychology is showing men are becoming more lovers of their own selves. And then she tells us selfishness is the want, the lack of Christless Christ-like humility and its existence is the bane, which means the curse or the plight of human happiness. We've known this all along, and psychologists are st just starting to realize that. Now I have to tell you something. There is a split in psychology between what, what science shows and what people are actually doing in the office sometimes. Science is starting to show more realistic things in terms of helping people, and in the office, we're still sticking to some of the old Freud, Rogerian, Maslow things. It's just amazing to me, the split that's going on. But as I'm starting to get back into the counseling realm, I'm reading more of this science, and I'm reading more, and I'm seeing that what God says is true. I had a, a, a woman, kind of jumping ahead of myself, but I have to tell you this, she, about a month ago, she called me and says, my, my um, brother is severely depressed, you know, and I just started getting back into counseling. Can you see her? See him, sure, but I said to her, before I, I see her, I just want to share something with you. Um, try hot and cold showers twice a day. The woman called me back, well, the, the, the young man came in, and she called me back three days later and says, my brother is like a different person. I said, really? She, he says, she said to me, he started doing the hot and cold showers. And his depression, I just see a clear difference. You know hot and cold showers raises three of the neurotransmitters in your brain. Serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Just simple hot and cold showers. He's still doing them. I actually learned that from Dr. Neil Nedley. And it worked. It was, it was wonderful. Then the same woman I was working with who had schizophrenia, her husband started to do, I believe it was the wet sheet packs on. Those of you who are into hydrotherapy know what that is. They wrap you with a wet sheet pack, and then you're wrapped again, and you stay under there for about several hours. And it, her agitation went down completely using that. So God's methods work, and we need people trained in these areas to help, because re the reality is people need help. You know, I can't say to someone, please go pray about it. They need a little bit more. Sometimes people need hand-holding. God's perfect way would have been for me to be able to, to say to them, pray about it, read the Bible more, but it's not, that's not how it is. So we need some hand-holding. And lifestyle techniques and understanding spirituality is another thing that helps. Look at this. Subjects completed a survey that measured happiness, gratitude, and thankfulness. Then they were told to write down five things they were grateful for. Researchers found that participants who counted their blessings once a week expressed more gratitude and thankfulness and rated themselves significantly happier than before. Tell me a Bible verse that supports this. In everything give thanks. Yes, you had your hand out, young lady. Were you going to say that? In everything give thanks? Good. <laughs> um, that's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. There's some mental health 
benefits from rejoicing. And then she tells us in heavenly places, I entreat of you never to utter one word of complaint, but to cherish feelings of gratitude and thankfulness. By so doing, you will be learning to make melody in your hearts. And notice she uses the same word, gratitude and thankfulness. And check this out, the study, gratitude and thankfulness. Isn't that amazing? God's way is the true way. Four-year-olds presented with a challenge. Eat one marshmallow now or wait a while and get two. When followed up 14 years later, those who waited, waited were trustworthy, self-reliant, and did well in school. Those who hadn't waited, waited were impulsive, stubborn, and scored lower on the SAT than those who waited. Isn't that amazing? Self-control is what we're talking about here. And the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. One of them is temperance, right? And self-control. I didn't put that verse up here, but that just came to my mind. But I had two quotes from inspiration. The exchange we make in denial of selfish desires is an exchange of the worthless and transitory for the precious and enduring. She also says, in childhood and youth, the character is most impressible. The power of self-control should then be acquired. And this study clearly shows that. Four-year-olds, those who didn't ex exercise self-control 14 years later, had problems, okay? So you see what I'm doing here? I'm looking at research, then I'm seeing how much it supports um, what we know and what we have in inspiration in the Bible. So I did this because I wanted you to see, I don't want you to leave here with thinking all oh, psychology is evil. There's some wonderful things being done in the area of psychology, but you have to check it against Bible and what we have in our inspired writings. So that was the first thing, testing everything against the Bible. The second thing we want to do if we want to start moving away from this vain philosophies is to believe that the Bible has the answer to our problems. How many of you all really believe that? We say that, but we're so quick to you look to other methods, but the Bible does have the answer. That's why in Timothy, she, he tells us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works. I used to just read that verse, but now it has much more meaning to me because I recognize the Bible has so much for us. She says, the true principles of psychology are found in the Holy Scriptures. And that's why I keep emphasizing, if you're in this field or going into this field, you have to study the truth. When bank tellers are studying um, to become bank tellers, what do they study? The true dollar. They don't study the counterfeits. But what's happening is we're going into this field and we're studying all these counterfeits. What Maslow said, was, what Freud says, what Rogers says. We need to be studying the truth so that when Rogers and Freud and Maslow comes along, we can say, ah, that's error. Ah, that's not true. So true psychology is found in the scriptures. Let's look at what the scriptures have. Some things that you know about, but there's biblical counsel on dealing with anxiety. Casting all your care upon him before he care, because he careth for you. If we really believe that, that will help us with anxiety if we really understand of not taking on these things ourselves but casting them on Jesus. 
take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I actually apply this sometimes when I'm dealing with stressful situations. I'll say to myself, I'll repeat to myself, I can't deal with what tomorrow is going to bring. The Bible tells me just deal with today. The same thing I told you earlier that I told the atheist, as thy day, so shall thy strength be. You just deal with the situations one day at a time. Good counsel for anxiety. There's biblical counsel on dealing with ungodly sexual practices. I used to work in an agency that dealt with sexual perpetrators, and some of the things that I was taught to help them was not biblical. And the word in psychology is you cannot cure people who molest other children. You can't do that. But I believe with God all things are possible, and a conversion experience can change anyone. And there are um, principles in the Bible we can use to help these people. I didn't know that back then. I was using the psycholo secular psychological techniques. But there was one person I was able to use something with, and I'll tell you about that. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's one thing that is good. When we work with sexual um, perpetrators, we focus a lot on thoughts. Because when they see children and others, the thoughts start to come to their head. And so we train them, start to manage those thoughts and distract yourself and learn other thoughts that you could replace it with. That's a biblical principle. And then we also tell them, if you're in this program, it was a two-year program I was working with these people, you cannot watch certain movies, you cannot watch porn. Biblical principle, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Okay? Of course, I wasn't basing that on the Bible, but there is a principle behind that. And this one is really important. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do you think that would be important for someone dealing with a sexual problem? I mean, pick your brains a little. Why would you think it would be important for them to understand that there is a God that we can confess our sins to and that he will f forgive us? Anybody? Why do you think? Yes. Say, say. Many of them are private sin. Many of them are private sin. And so helping them understand that you, confessing them can help with that. Anybody else? Yes. Well, the greatest cause of sin is unconfessed sin. Amen. Guilt. Amen. That's, you hit it on the head with that, both of you. The greatest cause of sin is unconfessed sin, guilt. There is an actual cycle that these people go through. And that's not only with that, that's with any addiction. You're saying you're going to stop this addiction, you engage in it, you feel guilt and shame. Guess what that gets you to do? Engage in it again. So you're in a vicious cycle. I was able to share with one person that there is a God who can forgive you and can break this cycle. And so the guilt wasn't as overwhelming for him. And he said that was so freeing for him because as you share this principle, they understand I don't have to get caught in that guilt-shame cycle to lead me to repeat that behavior. So that's real important. Right from the Bible, principles. Don't say any wicked thing before my eye. Change your thoughts. Confess your sins. You see how you can use the Bible practically to help people? And we don't recognize that. Then we have to recognize the importance of a converted, sanctified life. And psychologists do not lead you toward sanctification. Let me rephrase that. Secular psychologists do not lead you toward sanctification, which she says is a work of a lifetime. And we have lost that, even as Christians, in dealing with our problems. Let's look at some things. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There are such wonderful opportunities when we're working with people to help them understand that there is a Holy Spirit that can give you strength to overcome these things that you're dealing with as you're counseling them and understanding the process of being born again. 
This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, having a form of godliness. I kind of skipped over with the verse, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. I put this in there because I think one of the reasons we are turning to psychologists is because as a church we are losing power. Do you believe that? We're losing power. And so because the power is lost, we have to look for something to fill that void. We don't recognize and understand, and myself, I'm including myself in this, we don't recognize and understand the power that is available to us to deal with any issues, marital issues, parent and child issues, addiction issues, um, healing from our past, all of these can be dealt with by the power of God, but in these last days, we're losing that power as Christians. We really are. A form of godliness refers to the external characteristics of religion. But the power thereof is that power of God which cooperates will, with the will of man for the eradication of what? All sinful tendencies. That's why I think paraprofessionals can help just as much as professional. If a person is grounded in understanding the gospel of Christ, grounded in understanding how we can practically help people, you don't have to have a PhD to help some of these folks move away from what they're struggling with. Now, the laws of the land is a whole other issue we have to deal with, because the laws of the land says that if I put up a counseling shingle on my roof or the front of my door, I have to have a license. However, I believe there's ways that those of us who have the license can do this and still be able to point people to Christ and a Savior. I just picked a, a book here at Weimar's um, bookstore by a doctor who used to work here, and he talks about using, it seemed as I glanced through the book, dealing with alcoholics and using various biblical principles and doctrines to help them move from their alcoholism. I think he was having some weekly Bible studies with them, and the, the things I read was powerful. When the Spirit of God takes possession of the, of the heart, it transforms the life. Sinful thoughts are put away. Evil deeds are renounced. Love, humility, and peace take the place of anger, envy, and strife. Joy takes the place of, what did I have there? Sadness. I've moved on too quickly. And we don't recognize the, the presence and the need for the Holy Spirit. And I want to just emphasize that because Again, we're turning to psychology because we don't recognize what we have in our hands to help people. However, there are some people out there who are starting to recognize that and putting it into practice as they work with people. And um, it's a powerful thing. While the change in the direction of the life is instantaneous, I wanted to put this in there because that's important. When one is converted, growth and development of the true Christian are continuous and lifelong. Peter was converted when Paul had to chastise him. No, when God let down the vision about him being prejudiced. Remember? Conversion does that mean I, don't, I no longer have problems. There are no longer things I have to deal with. Conversion is just the beginning. And as we are converted and we start to grow in Christ, we'll start to recognize more and more things in our character that needs to be dealt with. So I don't want you to walk away thinking that I'm saying conversion will just cure everything. If you're converted, you're okay. No, it's a process that you go through through life. But I wanted to just mention that. That's why the Bible tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Read that with me. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Are you all understanding what I'm saying? Anyone not understanding when I'm talking about the gospel and the power of Christ to help change people? I heard about another group of young people in Oregon who's um, using a sanctified version of the 12 steps 
which, you know, I'm not exactly sure where I stand on that. I'm still, I'm still looking at that whole process. But the gentleman emailed me and told me that he's through this process, he's brought 61 people to his pastor for Bible studies. Okay? So there are ways that we can use these things to bring people to the Lord and not just help them change their behaviors or talk about childhood or do all these other things that just puts a patch on things. Now we have to consider, we're going back to how psychology affects the church. We talked about all the things that the contemporary Christian music movement in doing, is doing, and we have to consider how God looks at church growth. Do you all remember this um, sermon that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost? Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken away and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And she says about this, the people were made to see themselves as they were. How were they? and Christ as their friend and redeemer. What would psychologists say about that? The people were led to see themselves as sinful and polluted. Do you remember earlier in one of my earlier sessions, one of the psychologists says that when we point this out to people that it breeds a self-hatred? But when the church was growing during the day of Pentecost, that wasn't a concern. The concern was, let me point out to you what you've done. You've crucified this Jesus. You know, you've engaged in this act and as a result, this is what's happening to you. It's the same thing that's happening in our churches now. We're afraid to point out sin. We're afraid of people being offended. I've had many people say, well, if we get up and preach these things, then folks won't want to come to our churches. Have you all heard that? And secular psychology has a lot to do with that. We don't recognize that, but it has a lot to do with that. And the Bible says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Have you all seen any churches um, that you know of that's preaching the truth like that and the church is growing? Anyone have examples of that? You do? Wow. I saw one hand. <laughs> you do too. A few hands. We don't believe this. You know that, right? We don't believe a lot of us. Well, you know, I might be t preaching to the choir here, but a lot of us don't believe if you go out to many of the others in the Christian churches, not just Seventh-day Adventists. The belief is not that if you pre preach sin and preach um, things that will cause people to be convicted that the, the churches will grow because the megachurches are telling something different. They're saying you preach this love and this felt needs thing. Someone was just talking to me about a ministry that changed their focus to the felt needs. Oh, I remember now. I'm not going to mention the ministry's name. One of our ministries that's now becoming more felt needs focused in, in their whole way of preaching, and it's doing some interesting things, I'm sure. But it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. We've got to get back to the Acts model. The church is very precious in God's sight. He values it not for its external advantages, but for the sincere piety which distinguishes from the world. He estimates it according to the growth of the members in the knowledge of Christ and according to their progress in spiritual experience. When God is looking down on our churches, it's not the numbers that he's looking at. He's looking at how well are my people growing in grace and knowledge? Are they being sanctified? Are they converted? 
I can't tell the conference presidents that, though, because they want to see the numbers, some of them. But, you know, some of them are interested in seeing the growth of our churches spiritually. So I'm not going to put them all in one category. But there is some pressure to, to, to build numbers. But God's looking at it in terms of how are we growing in Christ. The world needs a practical demonstration of what the grace of God can do in restoring human beings. There is nothing that the world needs so much as a knowledge of the gospel saving power revealed in Christ-like lives. Now, this is something that we hardly hear about. Russia says by faith, but she says, wherever this message comes, its fruits are good. A vigor and a vital energy are brought into the church. We don't hear that a lot, but if you really study this message of righteousness by faith, you will find that it is very liberating and it can free us from many of the things that enslave us. We don't have time to get into that today, but there's a lot of people out there saying they're preaching righteousness by faith. But we need to test everything against the scriptures. Amen? Amen? And so we understanding this principle, as I studied it a little more, I, I'm trying to see, Lord, okay, now how did I take this into my work with people to help them understand grace and faith and, and how this all goes together? And that's something that's real important. Now, I don't know how many of you all read this in the Adventist Review. This was by Willow Creek, one of the biggest mega churches out there. She said, he, the, uh, the person said, we made a mistake. This is Willow Creek talking. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have taught people how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. How many of you heard of Willow Creek? Some of you have not. Willow Creek is like the mother of mega, mega churches and employed a lot of the things we talked about in some of the earlier sessions, the praise, worship, and all of that, because the belief is that we didn't offend people. We made people feel good that the churches would grow, and the churches did grow. But now, in 2006, they find out they made a mistake. Now, what they're doing now, I can't tell you, but to me, this was significant that they recognized that they should have taught people more of the Bible and less of the contemporary movement that they've been showing. And then as Adventists, we need to know our mission and identity. Somebody tell me, how can knowing our mission and identity protect us against some of the vain philosophies of psychology? Can anyone tell me? How is it that knowing who we are and what we're placed on this earth for, how can that help us, give us a protective barrier against some of the things going on? Yes. Okay. Identity. Identity can help us resist temptations as Christ in it did with his temptation. Say more on that. How can identity do that? Tell me more. Can you elaborate more on that? If you know for sure who you are, you're not caught by those well, if this and if that. Okay, if we know for sure who we are, we're not caught by things as much. What about as Seventh-day Adventists, our identity and mission? How can that help us not be penetrated by all this secular psychology thinking? Anybody know? Yes. Amen. We used to be known as people of the word, and if we know the word and it's in us, we won't be as deceived. Very good. What is our mission of Seventh Day Adventist? Somebody tell me. Do you know what our mission is? Prepare people for the coming of the Lord. What'd you say, Dr. Nelson? Same thing. Same thing. What else? Is it? To share what? 
Say out to share the word. Good, yes. When we're secure in our identity, we stop aping Willow Creek and others. Amen. When we're, when we're secure in our identity, we start, I don't know what word you use, but emulating or trying to follow Willow Creek and all of the other places. Have you all ever heard the sermon by David Asherick, Spiritual Amnesia? Oh, I would strongly suggest you all get that sermon. It's powerful. And what he's basically talking about is that we are Adventist amnesia. That's the name of it. We have lost and forgotten who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. And that's why we're following after all of these things that come about, grabbing onto them, trying to um, fulfill needs and do so many things, but we don't recognize we have what's there. Y'all, some of you were not here, but I have to read the, tell you this story again. How many of you all were not here to hear me tell the story about the Baptist professor? How many? I got to repeat this. Do you all mind me repeating it, those of you who were here? I don't have my book, but basically on, on the book that I wrote, um, The Dangers of Secular Psychology, Elder Mostert, who's the former president of the Pacific Union Conference, years ago was getting his master's in psychology. The Baptist professor, who was the chairman of the psychology department, came to him and says, I have all of Ellen White books. You as Adventists are so blessed, and if you'd realize that the Bible and spirit of prophecy, the information you have in there will solve most of the mental health problems that we're facing in the world. A Baptist minister told him this. He dropped out of the program after that. I didn't tell you that point, because he says, why do I need to go to this program if this Baptist minister is telling us we have everything we need? And we don't recognize that. As Seventh-day Adventists, we have a gold mine. She tells us, Seventh-day Adventists have been chosen by God as a peculiar people separate from the world. By the great cleaver of truth, he has cut them out from the quarry of the world and brought them into connection with himself. He has made them his representatives and has called them to be ambassadors for him in the last work of salvation. I just thought of something. I was watching, I don't spend all my time watching 3ABN, don't think that, okay? <laughs> but I was watching it again, and there is a group of, as a husband and wife team who has this um, organization called Hope for Survivors, and they work with women who have gotten into affairs with pastors, and they call, um, they call pastors to accountability, and they help these women who are dealing with things. But the pastor who is on their board said something that was powerful to me. He said, Satan is really pulling, and I'm paraphrasing, our Seventh-day Adventist ministers into this because he knows what time we're living in, and he knows the mission we are. We have a Seventh-day Adventist to give people this last warning. And if he can trip up our, our Adventist pastors into getting into affairs with women and doing all these other things, he's, he's done a masterful plan, has he not? And he says, so when he talks to ministries, he calls them back and says, there's a work to be done. Don't let the enemy trip you up like this. And I think we forget that we have a special job at Seventh-day Adventist, and the enemy knows it better than they, we do. And so he's tripping us up in so many ways. In child guidance, she tells us they should make them children acquainted, I put in children, that's what she's referring to as them, acquainted with the great pillars of our faith, the reasons why we are Seventh-day Adventists, why we are called, as were the children of Israel, to be a peculiar people. These things should be explained to the children in simple language, easy to be understood. And as they grow in years, the lessons imparted should be suited to their increasing capacity until the foundations of truth have been laid broad and deep. And if we did that with more of our children, whenever they were exposed to this era, 
um, any type of error, we would be more able to deal with it, but we're losing that. We're not teaching that as much as we should. And he, he tells us, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should, be sh that you should show forth the praises, which is virtues of him, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We need to be using ministers to ministries to draw members closer to Christ and to win souls to God's remnant church. Remember this morning I laid on my, you on what was on my heart about our ministries, single ministries, children's ministries, women's ministries, disabilities ministries, and all we're doing is ministering to one another and becoming more weakly, weakly and sickly, and we're not getting out there ministering to others. I really believe this, and I believe that part of our, the difference in, our, we should have a difference in our ministries as Seventh-day Adventists than other Christian churches. Don't you believe so? There should be a difference. But what I see us doing is we're seeing what the Baptists are doing with their women's ministries, and we're saying, okay, let's bring that into ours. We're seeing what the Baptists are doing with their youth and their children's ministries, and they're saying, let's pull this in. Not recognizing the ministries are not bad, but there's a different focus we should have with our ministries. Don't you all think so? We really should have a difference in our ministries. And I think if we were using them more to win souls and to draw people closer to Christ, we'd see some different things. I read this in Welfare Ministry, which I thought was interesting. She says, regarding the work presented in Isaiah 58, the true fast, you all know that, when she says, isn't that to deal thy bread to the hungry, and you know, basically reaching out. She says, the third angel's message is not to be given second place in this work, but there is, it is to be one with it. There may be and there is a danger of burying up the great principles of truth when doing that which is right to do. Do you all understand what she's saying here? This work of reaching out and ministering and helping is great, but it has to have a second place to the work of spreading the three angels' message. Did you all know that? Did you all know that? Hello. <laughs> Most of us, I didn't know this until I ran across it. And the problem is, with some of our ministries, we're so interested in doing some of these things that we forget. Um, hello, we're called to spread the three angels' message in addition to doing these other things. Are you all following what I'm saying? We, it's so important. Are you all sleeping on me? I don't hear any feedback. <laughs> yes. The same book, she says that. Thank you for bringing that out. She says that. Did you all know that? She says the Salvation Army was raised to do this work. But what's happening in our churches is that we're spending more time doing this work than spreading the three angels' message. I don't want to down this work. I think it's important to reach out and help others, but we have to remember the priority. I like Dr. Pippen wrote this in his book, Must We Be Silent? And he said, the women's ministry director of the Rwandan Union is at the forefront of women's evangelism. Last year alone, which was in 1999, 5,000 people were baptized through evangelistic campaigns conducted by women. While eating in the home of this woman's ministry leader, she explained to me that many of the women believe that the best way to say thank you to God for sparing their lives is to share the gospel. Amen. Isn't that amazing? Boy, can you imagine how many people would be coming into our churches if our women's ministries was doing more evangelism like that? However, there is, there is a little bit of a push for that with some of our women's ministries. And, 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 and we can incorporate in as so many ministries. The point I'm trying to, to give with that is let's not get so inward focused with our ministries. There's so much more we can be doing evangelizing Amen. and growing 
with our work. That's why I love the WIC and the GYC movement because it stresses evangelism. I have seen young people's lives changed with evangelism where sitting with me talking as a counselor, I couldn't do half of what that did. Getting people out, getting the young people out on mission trips, you know, teaching them how to truly evangelize. Now, we can also idolize that, too. I mean, it's more than just that, but I think that that's an important part of getting our young people to the point that they need to be, as opposed to just talking to a counselor. This woman right here, I just mentioned earlier, she has a plethora of information. I'm going to stop here um, because I see you all drooping eyes on me and getting kind of tired. I think it's because of the weather. But I'll ask <clears throat> right now in these next five minutes, do you have any questions about what we've spoken about thus far? Anybody have questions? Feel free to ask. I hope this is no one's water. Thank you. Anybody have any questions? Do you all get, those of you who've been through especially the three sessions, are you all getting an understanding and understanding how we can be moving away from secular psychology? Do you understand that I'm not saying all psychology is evil? Because <laughs> there's some good things we can benefit from psychology. But we just have to be careful. Any questions that you have? Yes. Change. That's right. The question is she has a friend who was abused by his mother, right? Uh -huh. And he is a psychologist. Now she's, he's a psychologist. Now he's a psychologist and she sees him, but she sees no real change. Do you remember when I went through the whole thing in the first session about dealing with past hurts? And I talked about pointing people to Christ and the cross and not digging through the garbage piles of their past? Somebody like that, I would definitely start helping them understand what Christ has done for them. I would help them. I would go through Bible stories with them, helping them see how other people have gone through terrible things. I'm just giving you a brief blurb. But I would use the Bible a lot to help them understand. I'll give you an example. A woman came in to me, and she had seen psychologists for years because she was born out of wedlock. She was in her 60s, born out of wedlock, and felt mistreated because she had sisters and brothers who had their same mother and father there. But she was born out of marriage and just felt so strange and mistreated and everything. And she had been through all this counselor, the counseling. The Holy Spirit said to me, Pull out that page from Desire of Ages that talks about Christ being born illegitimately, as they say. I gave that to her to read. She was a Christian and came back, and there was a glow on her face. I said, what has happened to you? She says, I never knew that Christ went through this, that he was ridiculed because he was, quote, unquote, not ha didn't have his unearthly father and mother. And she says, this has changed my life. I don't need counseling anymore. Do you see what I'm saying? So someone like that, using stories in the Bible and examples to point them to Christ and helping them understand that what they've gone through is nothing new, not trivializing that, but helping them to recognize that, that God can give them strength to move past that and understand that. That person definitely needs to understand more. Oh, so, that's a whole nother story that she was raised as a Catholic. So he didn't like the method of the so maybe he's attaching all the church the same thing. Yes, yes. He was trying to cancel alcohol and drugs, he's a counselor. Oh. And himself he was a counselor. 
Wow. So how would he help this kind of people? Well, they need to get to know Christ. I mean, I, there's, there's some things, she's asking, how will I help this kind of people? He grew up, he grew up in the Catholic Church. He has negative thoughts about the Catholic Church, and he connects all about church in general. He connects it all together. Sometimes, um, she says, the greatest argument sometimes is the life. So I wouldn't sit there and try to convince him that the church is not, is not all that you're saying that it is. I would have to show them through my life. And somehow the Holy Spirit, I'd have to pray for the Holy Spirit to change his heart. There's some things a human being cannot do. The Holy Spirit has to do that changing. Yeah, yes. that God has not given us the spirit of fear but power of love and of a sound mind very powerful quote sometimes it helps people too when I went over earlier to say okay you've been abused what are some things that you can gain from this experience what are some things that you can learn from this and just to change their perspective of focusing on the woes of their abuse and seeing how God can use that to help them to develop a character and to help others in that same situation so there's just different perspectives you take with these people and you ask for the Holy Spirit. I can't give you a this is how you do it thing, but I could just give tidbits of how the Holy Spirit can lead you to try to address some of these concerns. Any other questions? All right. We have one more session. This next session, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the counsel that she has and a few other things. And then my, um, some of the session will just be spent on reviewing some of the things we've talked about and answering any other questions you have. All right. Let's, let's bow for prayer again. Father, we thank you again for, for coming in this room with us. We pray that your Holy Spirit was here. And we pray, Father, for any things that are not clear, that you will encourage our brothers and sisters here to go back and study because you've given us the blueprint and you've given us the guidelines in the Bible, first of all, and then in our inspired writings. We thank you for what you've given us, the treasure you've given to us, and we just pray that we may learn to treasure these things more and prize them and use them in our work for ourselves and for others. In the name of Jesus, your son, we do pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.